Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, tonight that in the word before us is the testimony of a man who, in the midst of a trial, took every opportunity, Father, to declare truth and to stand firmly in that truth. Thank you for the book of Acts that it includes moments like this, Father, for though not all of us will have the opportunity, as Stephen did, to suffer for the, same, for the name of Christ, we do all, Father, aspire to be equally good witnesses in our own way and in our own walk. So, Father, I pray you give us encouragement from what we read, give us direction and guidance, and give us a model. Help us to see, Father, your spirit at work so we can take confidence to know you will be with us in a day of trial. And, Father, we pray that it would encourage our faith as it must have those who heard him in that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. So part two of Stephen's story, that's what we're doing tonight. We did part one last week, and part one was the selecting of Stephen, among others who formed the early deacons of the church. And then after that, we looked at how Stephen was called to go out and preach and to witness. And he had such power and such ability in his oration that he caught the attention of many of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And when I say he caught their attention, that's not a good thing. Not for him in that case, because it meant... He was annoying them. He was angering them, of course. Tonight is the second half of the story of Stephen. Tonight what we see is his defense against the charges that were brought against him by those leaders in Israel, by the men in the council of the Sanhedrin. Remember, in this day, there were no defense attorneys. There were no lengthy trials. And so Stephen was immediately brought to trial and immediately expected to speak for himself and give a defense against those accusations. As false as they were, nonetheless, he was put in the spotlight. There was, if you remember, the earlier counsel against the apostles in which Gamaliel stood up and said that if they were to fight against this movement and that movement had its origins with God, then what the leaders of the Sanhedrin would have been guilty of doing was fighting against God. And Gamaliel's conclusion was, let it be. If it's not of God, it'll probably get put down by the Romans anyway. And if it is of God, you don't want to be fighting against God. That advice has apparently, apparently all but been forgotten at this point, because as they have been angered by Stephen's words, they've gone right back to the same method that is persecuting by false charges and kangaroo courts. Now, what we're going to study tonight in the book of Acts chapter 7 is the longest discourse in the book of Acts. And maybe the most famous discourse in the New Testament, apart from the ones that Jesus himself gave, of course, in the Gospels. What he will go through here is, to put it simply, it's a very unconventional defense. If you knew that, if you heard the charges levied against him from last week, then you're probably, or if you haven't read chapter 7 yet, you'd be expecting that what Stephen would do in the course of his defense is deal directly with those accusations and refute them. That would be the natural thing to do. And in a sense, in a, very, in a very real sense, that's what he does. But he does it by a retelling of the history of the nation of Israel. And that's what makes the discourse so unique and so interesting. He, he retells the high points of Israel's history. And in the course of doing that, he provides a very powerful defense, not only of the charges that were levied against him, but more broadly of the gospel itself. And I have often referred to the discourse of Stephen when I've taught. In fact, if you've studied Genesis or Exodus or even into the book of Joshua, for example, then you may have found time along the way where you needed to refer to the discourse of Stephen because he will bring to light pieces of information in his discourse which are not in the Old Testament. And therefore, he extends the revelation of God in a couple of key places which we can only assume is based on the inspiration that the Holy Spirit had given him as well. So uh, it's a long speech, and at first glance it will seem to not have a lot of relevance to the charges or even to the gospel itself. Jesus' name is only mentioned once in the entire discourse and then only fleetingly at the very end. But in reality, as we study it tonight, you're going to notice that it is a remarkable delivery of both a defense to the charges and to the presentation of the gospel itself. It's really very remarkable. And to really understand it, you have to break it down a little bit, which I'll help you do tonight, and not simply gloss it over, because it's so easy when he's retelling history here that you know from prior experience or prior study, it's very easy to kind of think in your mind 
yeah, 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 I know where this is going. I've heard this story before and move through it too quickly and not appreciate it for what it is. So I'm going to give you the framework now, the, the basic outline or the basic building blocks that form this discourse so that as we study it tonight, I will come back to these building blocks time and again and remind you of them and you'll begin to see the pattern for yourself. So here are the building blocks, the things that, that Stephen does rhetorically as he gives his defense in this long chapter. First, in the course of his speech, he will defend the specific charges that were leveled against him by those false accusers, the, the, the charges that brought him to this trial. And I'll remind you of what those were. You can see them uh, for yourself back in chapter 6, of course. But they were blaspheming God, blaspheming Moses, speaking against the temple, speaking against the law, and speaking against the customs of Israel. So the first thing he does is defend himself on each of those points. And I'll show you where we in the text where he hits each of those points. Secondly, Stephen demonstrates that God's plan in redemption for sin has followed a regular pattern going well back into the Old Testament days in which Christ is pictured in the history of Israel so that God has always been telling, as it were, the same story over and over again using the lives of the people of Israel as his canvas. And in that story, he's always been telling exactly the same thing, the need for Christ and why and how he would come in general terms. And so in this discourse, as Stephen chooses to retell the high points of Israel, he will selectively choose moments that are key to revealing how the pattern of God has been there all along and that Christ is merely the culmination of something, not just an incidental moment that it is the continuation of the record of the Old Testament so that what has been shown throughout the record of the Old Testament simply continues and is fulfilled in what Jesus did when he came. So if you think of it, that's essentially telling the gospel, but not in the conventional sense, not in the way, for example, we would do it on a street corner. This is in a particularly Jewish way, letting them see through their Old Testament experience how God has been speaking to them about Christ even before they recognized he was in the text. Thirdly, Stephen's going to take opportunity to, in the course of his speech here to show where the religious leaders of his day had distorted and misused God's word and Israel's customs. So while they were busy accusing him falsely of disrespecting Moses and God and the temple and so on, he will defend those charges. But at the same time, he will show how these men are actually doing the very thing that they accused Stephen of doing. And then finally... At the very end, Stephen brings an indictment against the leaders for their failure to recognize these truths and for persecuting the saints. So he saves that for the end, as you might expect. So we're going to take it in chunks. We're going to look at this uh, discourse in logical chunks. Each chunk will be a, a kind of section of history. I am not going to take the time to teach the history because in most cases, I'm sure the history is already known. And if not, just see this then as an opportunity to, to give you reason to go back and study some of Genesis or Exodus or, or wherever the, the history comes from. Uh, but uh, for the most part, we're going to leave the history to, to what you already know. We're going to look at what is unique or significant about Stephen's raising of this point in the course of this discussion. Why did he bring it up, in other words? And then we'll break it down by those four areas as we look at the text. So the first section goes from verse 1 through 8. And we'll start there. So let's read. I'll read for you. Acts 7, verses 1 through 8. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they had been in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. 
And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So Stephen begins his retelling of the history of Israel with a section we can title the patriarchal period, the beginnings of the nation of Israel. Now, a couple of things to note. Uh, Stephen is using the Septuagint. He's quoting from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek version of the Old Testament, the Old Testament having been written originally in Hebrew. But uh, after the Hellenistic conquests of Palestine, after Alexander the Great rolled in and conquered that part of the world, and then there was a movement within the nation of Israel to translate their Hebrew text into Greek because so many of the uh, Jewish population had not learned Hebrew well enough to study their own text. They were now speaking the language of the realm, which was Greek. And by this point in time, the Greek version of the Old Testament was the predominantly used version. And that's because most Jews did not live in the land. Most Jews lived outside the land in the diaspora, in the regions around Palestine and Asia Minor that were Greek-speaking areas of Rome. Now, this is important because Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. Remember from last week, we talked about the widows of the Hellenistic versus the Hebrew Jews. And we said last week that the Hellenistic and the Hebrew Jews were commonly in conflict. One was a more conservative group than the other. One was more liberal than the other. And so you had this sort of tension between two groups of Jews. It's probably the case that Stephen's under persecution here, at least in part, because of that tension and that bias. He is a Hellenistic Jew, and the men who would have made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, who's putting him on trial, they would have been Hebrew Jews. Hebrew Jews spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. They did not speak Greek. They would have read out of the Hebrew Masoretic texts, the original Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible, and that's what they would have turned to and quoted from. Stephen here pointedly quotes from his own version, this kind of uh, Greek version, we would call the, the Septuagint. In today, you might find this sort of mirroring uh, a conservative versus a liberal Christian, one reading out of the New Living and the other reading out of the King James. And to the one who, who respects and wants to hear the King James, to read out of the New Living is heresy. And to the one who reads the New Living, the one who would insist it has to be King James, well, you're just being legalistic and, and old-fashioned. And neither is entirely right or wrong. The point is that that becomes a source of tension. In this case, it appears as though Stephen has chosen to read from the Septuagint, perhaps because that's all he knew. But it highlights the distinction between these two groups in such a way that it probably antagonized his, his jurors, the men who were sitting in judgment over him. The second reason that's important is that in the Septuagint there are differences from the original Hebrew text. And our English Bibles, by and large, are translated from the original Hebrew, Masoretic texts. They're not translated from the Septuagint because the Septuagint is itself a translation. So when we went to an English version, we went all the way back to the original text, just like they did, the, the Jews did when they made the Septuagint. Well, the fact that different translations arrive at slightly different wording is not surprising. So just be aware that if you go looking for these quotes that he gives from the Old Testament, you won't necessarily find them the same in your Bible as you see them represented here because he was quoting from a different version than we have. Now, if you go read the Septuagint, you'll see some of what you're, you know, if you could read Greek, you'd recognize these verses. Now, lastly, this raises possibilities for differences, that some of what you see said here will differ from what you see in the Old Testament. For In some particular cases, the differences seem to be contradictory, but in every case it can be reconciled. I'm not going to spend a lot of time tonight trying to point those out and perform the reconciliation for you, and I'm saying that because I think that's beyond the real point of what we're trying to study. But I want to mention it because some people make a big deal out of it. And you should be aware that there are answers for it. One example here in passing, and then I won't do any others, is when it says here that he, in verse 4, Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and from there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country. That poses a, a potential problem for some because in the Old Testament, based on the ages of, when, of Haran when he had children, the age that's given for when he had children, and the age he is said to die at when he's in Haran, and the age that Abraham is said to be when he leaves Haran, those ages don't match up. And the reason they don't match up is because we can assume that Abraham was born first because he's always mentioned first among his brothers. So we assume his date of birth matches the date at which Haran had children. But if we don't assume Abraham was born first, if we put him second or third in the birth order, then the dates are not a problem anymore. That's just one example 
of where here you seem to find a contradiction, but there is an answer that is reasonable that explains it. So just putting that aside for now, I just wanted to make those points. Let's look at the text itself and and move forward now. This is the testimony about the patriarchal period, and it is Stephen's response to the charge that he blasphemed God. Now, why is that true? Well, the technical definition of the charge of blaspheming God is to speak the name of God. But here, Stephen really defends himself on a broader level, on this notion that he had the, the suggestion that he has somehow diminished God's nature or character, not just his name. That's implied. When someone says you blaspheme God, the Jews would have understood it technically to mean you spoke in God's name. But we understand it more broadly, and that's the sense in which Stephen chooses to defend himself. This broader understanding that someone is besmirching the name or the character of God. Here he gives a very detailed and, and definitive defense of God as a God of character, of one who makes and keeps his promises, of a God that brings blessing and grace. And the retelling of Abraham's story reflects this high view of God as a promise-keeping God. So to the one who says, this man speaks negatively about God, Stephen's defense is, well, let me tell you who I think God is and what I know of God. And he gives the proper respect here of the way God's glory was established and made manifest through the patriarchs, through his promises to the patriarchs. So, in a sense, this is his opening defense against the charge of blaspheming God. And now, to one of those other building blocks, look at the subtle jabs he makes here at the Sanhedrin. He pointedly mentions here that Abraham has been called and given a promise, but he had that promise delivered to him while he was still outside the land. Remember the Pharisees? And the Sadducees and other Hebrew Jews who lived in Jerusalem, they placed excessive importance on being in the land. One of the reasons they felt high and mighty compared to the Hellenistic Jews were that they had stayed in the land. They hadn't run off and gone into foreign lands. They had stayed like they were supposed to in the land. And unlike Stephen and his family and his relatives who lived outside the land and they were wrong to do so, Stephen is going to make a point here over and over again that God is not wedded to the physical property that they occupy, that it's part of a bigger issue, something eternal, not something physical and uh, temporal. Here Stephen counters that notion. He points out that God was working with Abraham, who was a man who himself came from outside the land. God's words, uh, God's favor, in other words, is the result of a call and an obedient response in faith, not the result of a birthplace or some loyalty to a chunk of real estate. That's not what pleased God. There's a second jab here with respect to inheritance. The promise to Abraham was for an inheritance that Abraham would never actually receive in his lifetime. So Stephen makes the point here, and you notice in the text, it comes out very pointedly. This man lived never having received what he was promised in the sense of an inheritance. And that the fulfillment of that promise wasn't even going to be found in the land of Palestine, not in its present form. It's a future inheritance. That's consistent with what we hear in the book of Hebrews. So the jab fits with his view of God as a high promise-keeping God. He's not saying God somehow falsely said what he said or didn't keep his promise. What he's saying is God made a promise. Abraham knew that promise, but he also knew it wasn't a promise that was going to be fulfilled in his lifetime while he walked the earth. It was a promise for an eternal inheritance one that will only come to him after he's resurrected. After Abraham dies and is resurrected and walks the earth again, like we all will in faith, then he will see that inheritance given to him once and for all. And Abraham understood that. But what about that second building block, the one in which he shows Christ? Look for a pattern here, and you're going to look for this with me throughout tonight. A man of God, Abraham, chosen here, And there's two stages. In the first stage, the man God chooses is seen falling short of a supposed expected goal or falling short of the fullness of glory that God intended. Only later to be shown receiving that goal in a better way. So in Abraham's case, how would that pattern be reflected? In Abraham's case, he was chosen and called, appointed to something by God, appointed to an inheritance. But yet in his first attempt to receive it, that is his first earthly life, he didn't come to that. He didn't receive it. He, he only had a taste of it. And he ended up dying without it. But we know that in the future, those promises are still promises and God will keep his promises. Abraham is yet to still receive what he was said to be given. 
And so there is an expectation of a second opportunity for Abraham in which he will see what God has appointed for him coming to fruition. That is in the kingdom, in the eternal kingdom. That pattern, which is only barely visible at this point, becomes much more visible as he returns to it time and time again in this discourse. So God has chosen Abraham, sent him to a foreign land, but that in that foreign land he did not receive the full inheritance he was promised. Instead, what did he do? He produced offspring that became a nation and a family in his name. But through a covenant, Abraham is promised to eventually receive this inheritance in a future day. Now, how does that pattern begin to picture Christ? Christ himself was a servant called by God, given a promise and an inheritance, sent to receive it, not saw, did not see it in his first life, went to the grave. In his place is a family or sons which are raised up to live in that place in his absence. But there is a future day in which Christ will return and receive that full inheritance. Abraham is a mini picture of that. And, and Stephen's mentioning of it in this way and, and highlighting those particular details is intended to show that pattern to these men. Paul says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Paul himself makes the point that the Abrahamic promise, as it was given, already discussed or already alluded to Christ, just even in the words that God chose to use that through Abraham would come the Messiah, not merely a whole nation of people. So the connection there is made in Christ already. And then in Galatians 3.29, Paul adds, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Let's go on from that point. Now, this is the, the first section, the defense of the patriarchs and the defense of the charge of blaspheming against God. And it raises and, and demonstrates this pattern. Now, verse 9. The patriarchs, he says, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time on the second visit. Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So now the story turns to Joseph. And in this section, Stephen just continues to develop the story of Jesus as reflected in the lives and the circumstances of the Old Testament. And in the focus now of Joseph, we see the obvious picture. Many of you may have studied the life of Joseph in Genesis, and you already know he's a very powerful picture of Christ. His life just reflects Christ all over the place. Now, as he tells the story here, Stephen says the first time Joseph was called to lead his family. Remember when that occurred? He doesn't mention it here, but the story is so well known, it's implied or it's assumed. Stephen knows that the audience would have understood this implicitly. The first time Joseph was called to lead in his family was when the father, Jacob, put the coat on him, the coat that represented authority and the ring, and made him the number one child and therefore the child responsible for the family. The fact that he was the youngest at the time would have infuriated that family. So at the time that he has made the chief brother among his family, he instilled that and creates a jealousy from his brothers. And of course, they reject him. Stephen's subtle point here is that the rejection of men doesn't necessarily mean God's rejection. That men don't necessarily reveal God's attitudes in the way they respond to his chosen. Eventually, God raised Joseph up and restored him, put him into a position of power. And now Stephen adds a new detail to the comparison. He says, the family of Israel is struck by famine and stress and trial back in the land, while the, the other son, Joseph, is raised up and restored by the father. When Israel responded to their stress by seeking relief in Egypt, they end up appearing before the very one that they previously rejected. And in that moment, they give Joseph unknowingly respect and admiration, and then eventually they come to know him as their brother, and he calls for the rest of Israel to join them. What a perfect picture of what's going to happen to Israel with their Messiah. This account is a perfect parallel to Christ's experience with the nation. 
He came once to them as a brother among the Jews, their son, if you will. Remember when he was in the pictured in Joseph, Joseph's brothers represented the nation of Israel, the, son, the patriarchs of all the tribes. So a perfect picture there of Israel rejecting their own. Christ came to the nation of Israel. They rejected their own. And they put him to death, much like the brothers put Joseph in the pit or appeared to, to try to put him to death. But the father would have nothing of it and raised his son to glory and in a position of power. In the case of Joseph, second only to Pharaoh. In the case of Jesus, second only to the father. And then in that role, the nation of Israel was judged for their rejection. They were set outside the land in AD 70. They were put into a, a time of dispersion and persecution and stress and trial. And through all of that, they are being brought back to Christ so that in the last days, as we studied here in Isaiah, they will be brought to that crucible moment in tribulation when they will appeal to the one whom they've pierced. Remember from Zechariah 12. And in calling out on his name, he will return to them. That is a perfect parallel of how the stress of the famine brought Israel back to the knee, their knees in front of Joseph, in front of Christ, as he pictures Christ. And then Christ reveals himself to his own brothers and they embrace him. And then who joins them? All Israel. And as Paul says, all Israel will be saved in that last day. So there is a bringing together of the family of Israel under Joseph being pictured in this. But Stephen is pointedly demonstrating that there was a period first of rejection before there was the period of acceptance. And there's one last jab there, of course. God's blessing occurs outside the land. The nation of Israel, when they finally received the blessing of coming to know that Joseph was still alive and that he was in this position of power, where are they when this happens? They're in Egypt. They're not in the land. So God was at work blessing the nation of Israel while they're outside the land. Continuing to point out that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come to make who they were and where they lived more important than serving God. Verse 17 now, the next section. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now the picture moves from Joseph to Moses, but it's exactly the same little story told over again. And remember, Stephen's not manipulating the history so that it fits his pattern. He's showing the pattern that's always been there in the history. But sometimes you have to condense it this way for the pattern to really become obvious. It's a very artful, very uh, inspired kind of speech in the, under the pressure of a trial in this moment, right? So Stephen turns to Moses. He says here, uh, that the entire account of Moses here, as you see it reflected in the way he speaks it, he gives a very respectful and properly dignified discussion of Moses' history and his role here. So this becomes the defense against blaspheming Moses. If they are going to charge him with being disrespectful to the history or the name or the image of Moses, here he is, in his own words, saying what he believes about Moses and defending, therefore, the accusation of blasphemy. And now, like Joseph before him and, Mo and Abraham before him, he shows how Moses is a forerunner of Jesus. It's an obvious parallel. Hopefully you see it for yourself. And several of the things, by the way, that Stephen says here about Moses are similar to things that the gospel says concerning Jesus. Some of the words are almost exactly the same. So Stephen begins by reminding the leaders that God promised the nation would be oppressed. So he starts here with saying, as the time of the promise was approaching in verse 17, 
He's talking about that promise that was fit into the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that their people would be subjected to oppression for 400 years. When the time for that promise came about, the oppression began. So when the time for the promise arrived, they entered slavery. And during this time, the nation of Israel was under oppression at the hands of evil leaders. And there's another subtle jab here at the leadership of Israel. In the midst of this experience of being in Egypt, their leadership changed from being helpful to being evil. Now, granted, it was not Jewish leadership, of course. It was the Pharaoh. But the comparison here is still valid. That At one point, Israel was being shepherded and cared for by this leader, uh, the Pharaoh. When the leadership changed, they now found themselves being oppressed and enslaved. It's pretty clear that what he's implying by just mentioning it this way is that the nation of Israel in his day was in a similar situation. Oppressed, but, but oppressed not only by Rome, but by their own false leadership, by the unbelieving and hypocritical leadership that had come and captivated that nation. And in the midst of this oppressed moment, God sends a deliverer. In the day that he speaks of here, it's Moses. In their own day, it had just been Jesus on the cross not long ago. A man coming to bring the truth in the face of a lying, hypocritical leadership. Now, look at the experience of Moses and see if you don't see the parallels with Jesus here. A deliverer, well, that much is obvious, came, how did they both first come? As a child under unique circumstances. With a unique kind of parentage. In the case of Moses, he was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter, set on, on a raft after, the, you know, after they, uh, the mother was fearful that he would be killed. Jesus, of course, through a virgin birth. We're not saying those two forms of, of arrival are comparable, except that they're both unique. They both stand out in a unique way. Raised by a surrogate family. Jesus was, in fact, raised by a surrogate family of sorts. At the age of 40, Moses takes note of the plight of his people and begins to defend them. Jesus, at age 30, began his formal ministry to deliver the nation of Israel as their king. At that time, Stephen tells us Moses anticipated that his action would be met with the gladness of his fellow uh, Jews, right? That they would see him and appreciate his work as their deliverer or as their defender. And instead, Stephen says, they didn't understand. In fact, the next day, Moses tries to break up a fight among the Jewish people themselves, among two Jews, and they mock him for his attempts to help them. And in doing so, they, they pointedly say, are you to be our judge? They reject him as judge and ruler over them. And that causes Moses to flee. All of that prefigures Christ, of course, in his first coming. He was a Jew sent by God as the deliverer, the Messiah. He came with the expectation to, to, to rule over and, and defend and care for his own people, but they would have nothing of it. It also demonstrates that Israel has commonly rejected those God has sent to deliver them. The prophets are another example of that. So Stephen is illustrating the pattern. Now he moves further. Verse 30. He says, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom you disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. When it came time then, as Stephen says, for Moses to return, God appeared to him. Now I want you to notice again the reverence here with which Stephen describes Moses. The charge of blasphemy against Moses is, is effectively denied here as you see Stephen giving this proper and respectful testimony concerning Moses. Then secondly, he continues to show that the, the fact that physical land, this is that continued jab or criticism of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees in that they put too much emphasis on the physical land of Israel as if their current state in, on earth in that day occupying that region of the world represented the fulfillment of God's promises. That was the mindset of these leaders. 
And Stephen is arguing directly against that kind of thinking by saying, when, they, when God brought his call to Moses, it took place here again, outside the land of Israel, first of all. Secondly, the land was counted as holy, according to God, merely because of his presence. That his presence made the land holy. The land was not holy apart from his presence. Similarly, the nation of Israel is a holy place or a, a special piece of land only if and when God is present in the land. He was there, of course, in the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle and the temple. He was there as Christ walked the earth the first time, and it will become holy again when he returns to rule from Mount Zion in Israel again. That is the promised place of Christ's rule in the millennial kingdom. But without him present is just a hunk of land, an important piece of land because of its future. But in the meantime, it's just land. But to those who saw the land, and you can still see this today in Israel among the, the, the far Orthodox, they feel they wail at a wall, a hunk of rock, because it represents God for them. It represents all they have. Rather than understanding the temple of God is not found in human form or physical form today until it is represented by Christ himself when he comes back. It is represented only by the presence of the Spirit in the church. And he will bring that up here in a minute. So now here's the pattern again of Jesus. The man previously rejected by the nation becomes their appointed deliverer. And then Stephen reminds the leadership here that God himself has said that Moses was a picture of this coming Messiah. It doesn't require that Stephen make a jump in logic to make the point. Moses himself said that. There will be one like me who comes as a prophet for you. And then rather than speaking against Moses, Stephen says it's the Sanhedrin who is actually speaking against Moses in the sense that the pattern of a man once rejected and later received is the model. When Moses says there would be one who came like me, he wasn't merely talking about the power of someone's preaching or the fact that he would be a deliverer or that he would be a man who would rise up and rule over Israel. That's a part of it. But what you have to see in the text here is when Moses said to the nation of Israel, the one who God is going to send will be like me, he was also, I think, referring to the pattern here of how when he comes, you'll reject him the first time. Just like when I was rejected the first time. It'll take two go-rounds before you accept him. That's part of the pattern that Moses prefigures. Even after their disobedience, notice that the nation continues in disobedient ways. And so now the transition is to law, the defense of law. Verse 38. This is the one, he says, who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. This is all about Moses here. And who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him. And in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. So now he's dealing with the accusation that he blasphemed or he spoke against the law. So rather than speak against the law here, Stephen actually upholds the law. He calls, it the, he calls the scripture the living oracles in, in verse 38. He, and they're living, of course, because they are the manifestations of God in Christ. Today we would say the living word or Christ is the word. The word of God as it's represented on a piece of paper for us today becomes living in our hearts in the fact that it can do things in our nature, in our character, in our life that nothing else can do. Things that transcend knowledge. It's not merely the words in our head that make those changes happen, but they actually have a power that is supernatural, by, uh, created so by the Spirit working in us. I think of it as, I've said, I've said this before, I'll use it again, it's like fuel for an engine. The fuel doesn't do the work, the engine does, but the engine can't run without it. And with the right fuel in an engine, an engine can do marvelous work that you could never have done on your own. And the Word of God is the fuel for the Spirit in you, the sword of the Spirit, to do the work of sanctification, to do the work of salvation and the work of sanctification. So it's living in the sense that it changes living spirits by its power. Nothing else can do it. You can put water into an engine all you want. It won't run. You can put junk food into your heart and it won't run. You've got to have the Word of God. Nothing else runs the engine. So that's the purpose, that's the meaning of, being, of these things being called living oracles. So 
So Stephen pays proper reverential respect to the Word of God, to the law as it would have been characterized in their day. And in contrast to adoration for a living word, Stephen speaks against the peoples, the nation of Israel's historic disobedience to the law. So ironically, they're saying that you speak against the law because you declare things like the law has been replaced by a newer, better covenant. And Stephen says, well, far from disrespecting the law, I fully understand and appreciate living oracles. The point is that the nation of Israel is the problem and our leadership with them. We haven't been listening to them. We haven't been obeying them. They were unwilling to be obedient to God in their day, even to the point where as the law is being written above them, they're busy downstairs disobeying it, even as it's being handed to them. Or about to be. And that's another jab at the leaders of Israel here. They were unwilling to be obedient to the living word who came to them incarnate in flesh. They were unwilling to be obedient to the gospel, ultimately. And yet they had the audacity to accuse Stephen of not giving respect to the law and to charge him with that. And there's another parallel. The, the disobedience to God's law and to his commandments was instigated in Moses' day by a leader by Aaron, the man put in charge of the group while Moses was gone. Similarly, in this day, the leadership of Israel were the ones who led astray the nation when Jesus came and declared himself to be Messiah. They were the ones who said, no, that's not Messiah, that's Beelzebub. That's the only way he could have done those miracles and convinced the people to reject him. You notice in Stephen's discourse, he makes the point that when they were in the desert, and this is a fact that some don't know from reading the Old Testament alone, while the nation of Israel wandered in the desert, this is after they've been judged for their rejection at the mountain and the, and the calf incident. Now they're already punished. They're in the desert. You think maybe they'd learn? No. They carried with them, Stephen says, idols that they brought out of Egypt. And they continued to sacrifice to those idols while they were in the desert for 40 years. They never learned. This is, I think, why in the book of Hebrews you see the writer saying that they were an unbelieving generation in the desert. And they died in the desert w without faith. Only a remnant moved into the land under Joshua. The unbelievers died outside the land. So he's implying, I'm not the one speaking against the law. It's a Jewish Sanhedrin here that's the ones who are guilty of, of that offense because they've rejected the word of God in Christ. They've actually rejected the living word while you're busy saying I've disrespected the law. All right, verse 44, moving on. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it, uh, received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight. And he asked that he might find a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High did not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now, the final charge, if you've been keeping count, the final charge Stephen has to defend himself against is that he spoke against the temple and against the customs of the nation of Israel. So this opens his defense of how he is not speaking against the temple. What we probably can imagine is that Stephen had been saying something along the lines of what Jesus said shortly before he was crucified. That is, that the temple itself would be torn down, that there would be a new temple not made with human hands, that is, the body of Christ. Stephen was probably echoing this to whoever would listen. And all that the people who heard him heard, all they heard was, he said he's going to destroy the temple, or he said the temple doesn't matter anymore, or he said it's not the real place of God's dwelling any longer. Things that would have incensed any Jew who didn't understand the truth. And now he's defending himself here by a proper retelling of how the tabernacle itself even originated and then how the temple itself originated. And if those words are not distinct for you, just to make it clear, tabernacle was the original dwelling place that Moses was given to build for God. It's, it's a tent. It's a giant tent. Very elaborate tent, but it's a tent. That was the only uh, worship place that the nation of Israel had until Solomon built the temple that we think of now when we think of the temple, the, the, st the stone structure that's on the Temple Mount. So for, for many, many centuries, all they had was the, the fabric tent, the tabernacle. Then there came the, the temples, which we now are familiar with. In retelling it, Stephen mentions the tent was built where? In the land? No, in the wilderness again. 
again, the blessing and the grace of God arrived outside the land. And now, in this case, another detail, it arrived in a different manner than the way it was now presently revered. So the, la- the nation of Israel in this day now had taken to revering the temple, the, the holy mount. And he's here to remind them, by the way, this whole thing started with a tent outside the land. All right, the building doesn't matter. God had a different building in mind, in fact, when he first gave it to us. And in keeping with the author of, of the book of Hebrews, Stephen here reminds the Sanhedrin, even the first tabernacle itself wasn't all that special or important because it was a copy itself of something important. It was built on a pattern or a, a, a model that exists in heaven. God simply gave Moses a, an imitation of it, a little, a little model. You know how kids have model cars, right, or model airplanes? We never mistake the real thing for the fake thing. They look an awful lot alike. One reminds us of the other. It's got that value to us. But at the same time, you don't fly or drive it. You know the difference. That's what he's trying to emphasize here out of the Old Testament. God gave us, or the nation of Israel specifically, the tabernacle so that they had a place that would be evocative or reflective of the real dwelling place of God in heaven where real worship and real sacrifice takes place for the remission of sin. This thing on earth is the play copy, the play school Fisher-Price version that we get to have as our experience in the meantime. And God made it his tabernacle and he would give it the grace of his presence in the form of his Shekinah glory from time to time as he gave it originally and then eventually it departed. Now, and Stephen's comment, of course, at the end is God's not held by anything men build anyway, so it's never like we built it because he needed it. It was for us, for, for the nation of Israel. Now, at a point later in their history, he says, David, the revered king of Israel, the, the high, if, if the nation of Israel were to rank their kings in importance, they would all put David at the top. That's a given. So the, the, the man after God's own heart, David, asked God for the privilege of building a permanent structure to honor the Lord. And what Stephen is teaching here, what he's, what he's highlighting, is that the idea of a temple originated with David, not with God. That though God eventually permitted it, we see it was a man-made request out of David's desire to show God glory, to, to return a favor of such, uh, in some sense, to God. It was out of David's desire to do something, not out of God's need, that this big structure got built. David requested it, and then, as it turns out, God denied the request, at least to David. It was later granted to Solomon. Now, this is what's so interesting for the sake of the Sanhedrin. Solomon was a lesser king. David was the greater king in the the eyes of the Jewish leadership. So when the temple was finally built, it was built by a lesser king than David. How important can this building be to God if he waits for a lesser king to come along before he decides it's worth building? In fact, as we know later in Solomon's reign, it became Solomon's undoing in the sense that it it became such a glorious place that it arrived at a it was the means by which he arrived at a lot of his wealth and his prominence in that day which only led to more women and wine and trouble. And so Solomon's own undoing was the way in which he built up this palace to himself in the name of God. The temple frankly was not a priority for God because God doesn't dwell in buildings made by human hands and it did nothing but inflame the pride of Israel. And now by the time it had become Herod's temple that monstrosity that Herod had created, it took the place of God for the sake of many Jews. Things you can touch, feel, and look at and reflect, in some sense, pride upon ourselves are the things we gravitate to in religion. Cathedrals became cathedrals because of what they did for us, not what they did for God. And today we have our own way of doing that, just a different style building. Or even if it's not in a structure, it's in a program, or it's in something that stands to show us off in some physical form. Uh, that's always a dangerous thing because it appeals to the worst nature of us. We, we, you know, I, and I'm, by the way, I'm guilty of that too. I can't, you know, sometimes you, 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 you can't help but say, I wish we had more people in the room. There's a good side to that wish because you want people to hear the word of God. But you also have to recognize at times it's just selfish. It's just, I want to see more people in the room. It makes me feel, feel like this is a more important endeavor. You have to be careful with that. That's how, that, that, at that point, you're working for yourself. Now, move forward from there. Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. 
So finally, he brings his discourse here to conclusion by applying all of those lessons he just played, for, uh, played out for his audience. He says, they're repeating the sins of the fathers and they are uncircumcised in the heart, which is to say, you are unbelievers. That's how we would say it today. You know, remember in the time of Israel, they don't think of believers versus unbelievers. You're either in or you're out. And they considered being in to be of Abraham, circumcised on the eighth day, raised in the law and, and in the customs of Israel. It was, it was culturally in versus not. And then as those who came to know God truly understood the law properly and understood the sacrificial system properly, then they understood that there was a difference between culturally being Jew and being circumcised in the heart. I had a very similar experience coming out of a Catholic background. Before I knew the Lord, my understanding of being religious, being, being of God in some sense, was the family upbringing in the Catholic Church and the participation in all the Catholic rituals and, the, and a kind of consistency and dedication to all of it. That's what it meant. Only after I came to faith could I look back on it with, really, with open eyes and true understanding and realize that's just all an act. I mean, it's an act in the sense that it's all just activity. It doesn't provide for anything spiritual. Once I had circumcision of the heart or the changed nature, the, the new life, the new birth in the spirit, all, all saying the same thing, came to believe, I could see the difference. That's the nature of faith, by the way. You don't know what you don't have till you have it. Then you realize the difference looking back. You can't understand it going in. That's why the things of God are foolishness to those who are perishing, as Paul said. You can't see it on this side. That's why we're all dead in sin. So he's making exactly the same argument to the Jewish audience. He's saying to these people right now in this context, you think you have what you don't have. And you're just like your fathers before you who persecuted the, God, the men God did send to them. Just like you persecuted Christ. That's the implication here, of course. And then he says it outwardly. He says, you have now become the murderer of the righteous one, of the Messiah. And this comment, you are uncircumcised in heart. That is such an interesting phrase because uh, the use of circumcision to picture the saving work of the Spirit in the heart later becomes one of Paul's favorite ways to talk this topic. When Paul later in his letters tries to find the right way to discuss the difference between the pious unbeliever who's done all the outward physical things but lacks the true heart of faith, contrasting that with a true, under, a true believer, someone who's truly saved and knows the, the, the Lord through the Spirit and will be going to heaven, when Paul tries to figure out a way to characterize those two things, today we would talk saved, unsaved, believer, unbeliever. Those words didn't really exist in that way in his day. He chose to call it circumcised of the flesh versus circumcised of the heart. The first being an outward physical religious ritual that meant nothing to the, in the sense of salvation. It means nothing. And then he contrasted that with a spiritual work, the heart, something you can't get to and touch. There's nothing you can do humanly to make this happen. It's a spiritual work in the heart. God does it. But when it's done, it's what saves you. He chose that comparison. What's so interesting about that is Stephen introduces this concept as far as we can tell. It's his idea to the spirit. And we know, as we'll see here in a minute in the text, who's standing listening to this. Saul. Later, Paul. It's interesting to me because I can't help but think that as Paul, at this time he saw, but when he hears this, it didn't make much sense in the moment, except to get him mad. But later, as the Spirit has come to him after the road to the Damascus moment, he must have thought back on this and seen the difference himself, just as we all do after faith, and realized the appropriateness of that comparison and began to use it and taught on it himself. Stephen says to the leadership, they have rejected and persecuted the prophet just as their forefathers did to the prophets. The righteous one being Christ, of course. And all of this was foretold beforehand. If you look back on his discourse, this pattern that he keeps using over and over with Moses and with uh, Joseph and with Abraham just foretold exactly what they did. That the first coming of these deliverers or the first experience with these men would not be one that came to fulfillment. It would be one that comes to a measure of frustration. Of, of lack of fulfillment, but there would be a later time when fulfillment arrives. And if you keep the law in, its, in this context, if you understand that the law itself, as Paul teaches, was a tutor to drive us to Christ, was an instrument that God used to reveal Christ, once you know that, you can truly obey the law because you obey it by coming to believe in Christ. And that's how he can end that statement that he does in, in verse 53 when he says, you who have received the law, but you didn't keep it. 
You who piously sit there defending something you don't even understand because you haven't received its true meaning. That is, to receive Christ. And then in verse 54, we see their response. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at Him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at Him with one impulse. When they had driven Him out of the city, they began stoning Him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So in response to the damning conclusion that he brings them to in his discourse, the predictable response, right? The Sanhedrin erupts in anger. And we're told in the text, they're cut to the quick, is the term in English in my version, at what they're told or what they hear. The language Luke is using here in the Greek, it literally means this, they're sawn in two. Those are the words in Greek. And then that is followed by gnashing their teeth. And that means, it's a colloquialism in Greek, it means literally to bite with loud noises. Now, it's a, it's a turn of phrase. It probably doesn't mean they're you know, doing that to him like a chipmunk. I don't know what that would look like in a room full of men doing that. What it, what it reflects is the kind of angry, hateful speech that would have been coming out of their mouth. It's an aggressive, angry style of speaking. That's what it implies. And the cut to the quick, the sawn in two, is a, that doesn't need a lot of explanation. It just goes to the point that what they heard cut right through them. It pierced them. It, it, it affected them deeply. Now, look back on what we covered in the discourse, considering all that, is, that he, has been, he has said. The name of Jesus is never mentioned. The closest you get is the righteous one, right? He does make a reference to him. The point being that this is a defense in part against the gospel being declared invalid, right? It's a partly a defense against the crimes he's been said to commit, and he's done that in terms of his own statements along the way. But it's also a defense against Christianity, or defense of Christianity, because ultimately that's all this comes down to. And yet, in his choice of words, when he defends himself and defends Christianity, he never makes what we would think of today as the classic gospel presentation of Jesus. But the reason that's so, in part, is because this is not the modern Western Christian Gentile audience, which would obviously receive a different kind of message. This was the Orthodox Hebrew Jewish culture. And for them, this is how you preach the gospel. Out of the Old Testament, showing how the righteous one is delivered by, uh, is uh, fulfilled in Christ, how it fulfills all the promises God has given to the Jews through the Old Testament. Now, it wasn't received here, and I don't know that Stephen expected it to be received necessarily. But it is the way in which you speak to these men about this matter. And the name Jesus is, is not the issue. It's the man Jesus as he fulfills the Old Testament. Interesting uh, is he makes no mention here about uh, Jesus at all. That becomes a link in, of sorts between Peter and Paul. Remember the, the book of Acts is two, two chapters or two parts really. It's Peter on the first half and Paul on the last half. And Stephen is the juncture. He's what links them together. Now there's a few other chapters kind of intervening between now and when we really get to the story of Paul. But, but in a sense, this is where that transition takes place. And the mention of Saul is part of that process of giving us that, that foreshadowing, I should say, that Paul is about to come into the story. Remember, Peter here, looking at the first half, he, in being that link, if Peter linked to Paul by Stephen, Peter was the, the apostle to the Jew. He was the one who was so reluctant in his own ministry to consider that the message of, of the gospel meant the end of the law. It meant the end of the temple. It meant the end of the priesthood. It meant that the Gentiles now might be brought into the family of God. It was so hard for Peter to consider that those things were true that God actually had to bring him a dream, which we'll see later in, the chat, in this book, to emphasize to him that there was a new period of grace, a new dispensation inaugurated by a better and, and new, new and better covenant, and that the old had passed away because of the new for those who believe. That is, in a sense, the men Stephen is fighting against. That that incalcitrant group of Jewish leaders who were not willing to consider that anything could replace what they had placed their trust in, which was the law and the temple and the Jewish customs. 
Peter had moved beyond that, of course, in his own walk. He knew the Messiah. But in his cultural view, he was still very much like these men. And he, he forms sort of the first half of the story with that view. But as the church becomes more of a Gentile church in its later years, Stephen is that link in which you see in this discourse the way in which we understand how the law and the temple and all that came with it could be put aside because we see, as Stephen explains, something greater that is fulfilling, fulfilling all of those things has now arrived. And Paul now, we know, is the apostle appointed to the Gentiles and he is clearly the one who preaches how the old has given way to the new. Most of our New Testament theology on that point comes from Paul, notably out of books like Romans and Galatians. So that is the link. Stephen taught the man Paul to some degree in this moment what it meant that Christ had arrived. And he is the first among his brethren to preach a new dispensation. So he he forms an important juncture in this story. Lastly, as we finish here, while the eruption is taking place, Stephen, we're told here, is calm and he's encouraged by this heavenly vision. It's apparent that we can, I think it's apparent, that he alone has granted this vision as he's in the room. But it seems as though, and then we'll just look at the vision for a moment, he sees Jesus here standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The scriptures tell us explicitly to expect this, particularly in the Old Testament, Psalms 110 describes Jesus at this, in this place. Later in the New Testament, of course, we see further confirmation that that's where Jesus will be or uh, is. But Stephen's vision here is the only known manifestation of it that we have in Scripture. The only one who's ever seen it is Stephen, or the only one who's ever reported to see it. When the Messiah is seen next to the Father in Scripture, he's, usually, he's always in one of two positions, seated or standing. Now, the book of Hebrews emphasizes that he's seated because when a servant is done with his work, he can sit. But until he's done with his work, he's not allowed to sit down. And as the servant of the Father, Jesus was not allowed to sit, as it were, in that right-hand position until the work of redemption was complete. So when the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it's a way of saying all the work that's required to save you and I has been done on the cross. It's over. It's finished. The work is finished. But here you notice Stephen sees him standing. Is it a contradiction? No, because what you're... you're what you're seeing in the vision, what Stephen's seeing in the vision is Jesus getting up and standing in that moment to make a different point to Stephen. The point he's making there is I'm at work in this moment guiding, guarding, and directing my church and you. I'm at work interceding for you with the Father in this difficult moment. I'm listening to what you're saying and I am working on this moment for you. All that's happening is under my control. It's the difference between the work of salvation which he's seated from, versus the work of building my church, which he promised he would do throughout this age, and he is continually at work in that. But as he gazes at this site, his expression here, the way he responds to it, makes it appear, to me anyway, as though he thinks everyone can see it. Like he's announcing it. Hey, everybody, check it out. The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the Father, standing next to the Father. Look, look. And he may be saying it with the expectation that if, if it's happening and everyone can see it, it will put an end to the argument. Look what I can see. But apparently no one else sees it, of course. And he says, the Son of Man next to the Father. And that's the last straw. That's what gets them erupted. And, and, and cover, you notice they cover their ears. I don't want to hear any more of this heresy. Don't talk anymore. And they rush at him because he says, essentially, Jesus, I can see him in heaven right now next to the Father. That was the last straw for them. According to Deuteronomy, when you stoned someone, the witnesses threw the first stones. Now, the reason they did that, is, or the reason God put that in the law, is actually very instructive. If you're going to have the gumption to stand up and accuse someone of a crime that's worthy of death and be the witness against them that leads to death, then you better be prepared to be the first one to throw a stone. It was a way of making sure that the testimony was honest because you knew if you were to go testify and it was to be, they were to be held guilty, you knew that you were going to be called on to throw the stones. So witnesses were expected to be there for the stoning as a way of emphasizing the seriousness of it, I guess. And in order to be more comfortable throwing stones, you would take off your outer cloak, which is a binding kind of garment, and you would just have basically underclothes on, which made it easier for you to move and not trip over your gown and all of that. So in the scene we see Saul, described as a young man, receiving these, kind of like a coat clerk, watching over them. And he's described as young, and in Hebrew terms that means under 40. 
And the last thing I'll say is you notice he's uh, apparently still having visions of Jesus even as he's being stoned. And he asks Jesus to take his spirit. Now what he's doing, I think, here is he's asking for premature death. He's asking for the blessing of Jesus taking his life before the stones do so that he doesn't have a prolonged experience under the stoning process. Because it didn't, you know, stoning sometimes would take a while depending on the size of the rock. So it wasn't an easy way to die. So uh, Jesus appears to answer his prayer because he dies while he's still on his knees. That would have been very unusual in light of how stoning works. You would have had to have been on the ground and then later unconscious probably before you'd reached the point of death. He's still alive and unconscious on his knees and he dies. That would seem to suggest that Jesus answered the prayer and removed his life in a way similar to Jesus' own death, right? That he gave his life up in a moment. And uh, it's also mirroring Jesus in the way he says, don't hold this against them. Sort of as Jesus said, Father, they do not know what they do. So uh, clearly what Stephen becomes for the church is a model of martyrdom, not merely in the fact that a powerful, bold statement of our faith may result in death, and that's a, that needs to be an acceptable outcome for the Christian if necessary, but also in the manner by which he does it, all the way to the end, in fact, graciously saying, God, don't hold this against them. I mean, it's a, it's a very unique kind of moment that becomes a hallmark for the church forevermore. The apostles themselves were probably thinking of Stephen as they tried to live up to his example in their own deaths. And that's something we can carry away to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the sobering teaching of uh, Stephen's discourse and his martyrdom. Father, no one wishes for that. And, and in our day, Father, we're thankful we live in a country where we don't experience this, at least not yet, and at least not routinely. But Father, we also know that there is power to be found in a church that is willing to be martyred for its faith. And there is power in a word that is sent out from those who are under persecution. And you have often, Father, made a persecuted church the strongest church. So, Father, we, while we don't pray to be persecuted, for that's a difficult prayer to have, we do pray, Father, that you would use any means necessary to strengthen us and this church and, and your body wherever they are gathered so that it may be more effective in glorifying your name. For, Father, we do not wish to save our earthly life, but we are willing to lose it so that we may preserve the eternal that you have promised. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to study and to learn here at Wayside and for the gathering tonight. And may we come back next week according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And it won't be next week. It will be two weeks for Thanksgiving break.